Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. This episode is a live event that I did earlier this week. Uh, it is about, well, the name says it all, the mythical geography of the Pacific Northwest. Um, because it is a live event, you will often hear me making references to maps that I had projected on a screen in the background. Obviously, this being a podcast, we are limited by the format. But if you do want to see the slides that I used for this presentation, uh, I have linked to them over at weirdhistorypodcast.com. So just head on over to there, click the link, and you will be able to see what everyone else saw. Enjoy! Hello, everyone. Hi, Joe. Hello. Hi. Thank you guys for coming out this evening. Really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm the host of the Weird History Podcast. Yay! Uh, before I begin, uh, thank you to a few folks. Uh, first off, thank you to Floyd for hosting us. And thank you in particular to Megan for making this possible. Thank you, Megan. Putting me on the spot for being too weird. Um, also, Thank you for technical assistance from Katie Proctor of Books with Pictures. Uh, Books with Pictures, it is, I never do ads on the podcast, but it is the single greatest comic book shop in Portland, Oregon. And you should, you should go there to like buy stuff. Uh, she, helped out with, she helped out with like a projector and stuff tonight. Uh, by the way, my notes are on my phone, so no, I'm not checking Twitter or Facebook. Uh, during the thing, I am reading a, I'm reading a Google Doc. Um, but I want to begin with uh, this image right here. And this image is something that I think you've probably seen before because it is one of the most well-known and well-marketed images on planet Earth. And it is over planet Earth. Uh, it's called the Blue Marble. And it was taken by the astronauts in Apollo 17 in... 1972, and one of the things I really, really like about this image is that, well, one, it's just the Earth for space, and that's amazing, but also, you never, ever see the world this way. Like, think about maps that you've seen in classrooms, or atlases, or think, like, iconographic ways that you've seen the planet we live on. You almost never see a map that showcases Antarctica uh, the southern part of Africa, Madagascar, the Indian Ocean, and then the Arabian Peninsula. <laughs> um, if you were to look at this image, you would assume that South Africa, Mozambique, and Madagascar were just the center of geopolitics for all of humanity, and that, like, Qatar was kind of important, too. Um, and I'm starting with this image in this presentation that's all about, like, older maps that were, like, less, art, uh, less accurate to make the point that, like, maps always show, always show our biases. They always show our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations. They always tell us something about what we think is important when we make them. And so I wanted to go from this image of the Earth from space that is still... Oh, by the way, this, even this right here is not objective. This was manipulated as well, because when the astronauts took this picture, uh, Antarctica was toward the top. 
Uh, this was flipped around to match our north up biases. <laughs> so even here where we're looking all naturalistic and stuff, there's still our own expectations at play. But yeah, I want to show you another map from like uh, a while ago that shows other different human kind of um, biases at play. This is also a map of the world. Has anyone seen this before? Yeah. Yeah, this is one of my like favorite world maps ever. Um, this is a medieval map that's known as the TNO map. And uh, you can see that there are the two sort of sections on the lower part. And the lower left-hand corner is Europe, and the lower right-hand corner is Africa. The upper part is Asia, and the city in the middle is Jerusalem. East is up. And well, that's where the sun rises, but also that means that if you're going from Europe toward Jerusalem, you are going upward. <laughs> to, go, to go further to the Jesus area, you are going up to the map. Journeying that way is like a geographical and also moral journey. And also, this one doesn't, but a lot of TNO maps also picture um, the Garden of Eden at the very, very tippy top. <laughs> Which means the Garden of Eden is like in Shanghai or something like that. Um, but yeah, my point is that all maps kind of still do what the TNO map do. Like, I'm not going to say, like, all of them are inaccurate and you can't believe anything. It's all relative. I'm not going to say that. But I'm saying that there is always, like, dreams and hopes and biases at, at, at play. And tonight, I want to talk about a few of those dreams and hopes and biases as they related to where we are in the Pacific Northwest. And the Pacific Northwest is kind of fascinating because it didn't get really mapped until pretty late. Now, granted, big disclaimer, I'm not talking about like Native American ideas about what the Pacific Northwest is. Uh, when I was working on a feature for the Portland Mercury that, I, that got published like a few weeks ago, uh, I talked to a few experts about like Native American conceptions of their lands and how they thought about, say, the Rockies and the Cascades and the, Columbia, and the Columbia River and the Pacific Coast and all that. And they had a pretty good idea of where they were. They didn't have like wacky fantasy notions about like, <laughs> the land that they lived in. They knew where people were and where stuff were. And um, yeah, they had their head on straight about it. Uh, so I want to emphasize I'm talking specifically about European and American notions of where we are which for the longest period of time was the kind of erroneous blank space on the map. This was the, like, there be dragons or Hicksunt dracones, if you want to use the Latin, uh, area of world maps for the longest time. Um, this right here, I'm going to start out with something that uh, might not seem all that uh, neighborly to the Pacific Northwest and the Portland, Oregon. Uh, but is important, the North Pole. Um, this is the first ever map we have of the North Pole. Uh, it is made by a guy whose name that you will remember, uh, Gerardus Mercator. He is the guy who's responsible for the Mercator projection. You know, the thing that makes Greenland really big. Um, and I think that we've all seen the scene in the West Wing where they talk about it on a Mercator projection. It's kind of racist. Yes, we've all seen it. It's great. The West Wing is like the best show ever. You should watch it. Um, but uh, he realized the shortcomings of his own map. Uh, Mercator, when he made a map of the world, knew that it kind of stretched the North Pole out 
to the point where it was like big and infinite looking and kind of useless if you wanted to get a good picture of it. So he made this map in the corner that was this kind of like mini thing of the North Pole nestled into his world map. Now, this North Pole is a little bit different from what we think of as the real North Pole. Unlike the real North Pole, there is no Santa Claus, as you might have noticed. His workshop is nowhere to be found. Instead, you can see in the very middle a large black monument that was thought to be the Magnetic North. And the thing that was thought to be the Magnetic North also was thought to contribute to big polar vortexes that sucked water downward on the top of the planet. Um, yeah. Uh, other things that were there was a land of pygmies, which were right around here, uh, just north of what we would consider to be Scandinavia. Now, um, apparently a lot of people who look at this thing think that maybe he was talking about uh, the Sami people, the Lapland, or what used to be called Laplanders, the like native Scandinavian people who saw their own like language and religion and are kind of like ethnically and culturally distinctive from the rest of the people in Scandinavia. Uh, maybe. Or maybe he just like put pygmies there for no reason. Um, but what I think is like really important about this is the very top. Now, down here, you can see something that might look kind of familiar. Here's Scandinavia, right here. And over here, guess what? It's Iceland. Um, the team that I put $5 on in the World Cup and then disappointed me. Um, I should have done that. Uh, over here is Greenland. It's still pretty big. Yeah. Here is North America. And here is a tiny strip of water separating Asia from the North American <laughs> continent. <laughs> this right over here is China, Japan, Korea, and everything else. Here's a tiny strip of water. And here, theoretically, is us. I can see Russia from Oregon. my house. Right. And that little strip of water right there, it's labeled on this map, is the Straits of Anyan. What is the Straits of Anyan, you might be wondering. Uh, well, that is just the tiny little thing that uh, theoretically made us neighbors with, you know, the distant east. Not necessarily real Asia, but maybe like imagined Asia. And it was a feature that appeared on many, many maps after this one. This is one of the earliest ones. It's based on a uh, quote from Marco Polo. Uh, by the way, have you guys ever tried to like, read Marco Polo's narrative? It is remarkable in how boring it is. <laughs> um, Marco, Polo, uh, Marco Polo's book, it's not actually called The Travels. It's called A Description of the World. It is very aptly named. And it talks about here is a village. It's next to this river. Next to that river is another town. Uh, next to that town, there is a large plain, and it just kind of goes on like that for the whole book. But I mean, had you had you been somebody in Venice and you know Marco Polo times, and you didn't have Google Earth, I could maybe understand the appeal. But anyways, quote he says about this area on the very very east coast of Asia. He says, quote, departing from the port port of Zaitun. Excuse me. Departing from the port of Zaitun and steering a westerly course, but inclining to the south for 1,500 miles, you pass the gulf named Canaan, which three extends to the distance 
uh, Cana, excuse me, which extends to a distance of two months navigation along its northern shore where it bounds the southern part of the province of Manji and from thence where it approaches the countries of Ania, unquote. So he has this, uh, what he just said there is that there's this big gulf. It takes you about two months to navigate the whole sort of like length of it and it's in this area called Ania. And that's it. That is the whole thing that Marco Polo says about Anya or the Straits of Anya. But this tiny little thing of text evolved into all kinds of references on different sorts of maps. Here's another one. This one, is from a bit later on, is a bit more pronounced. And again, you can see Scandinavia right here. Uh, you can see Iceland right there, Greenland, and then there's a big sort of area that they've conveniently put like a bunch of info. <laughs> uh, then there is what we would consider uh, the Bering Strait and the Straits of Anyang right there. Here's another one, uh, and this puts the Straits of Anyang front and center. Now, what I think is uh, especially fascinating about this map is that it does something that lots of maps like, are really consistent with in that it skips over one of the biggest geographical features of, in the, on the entire Earth, like the Pacific Ocean. It is the <laughs> biggest body of water on Earth, and here it's just a hop, skip, skip and a jump uh, between Asia and North America. Here is China, it's very detailed, here is Japan, and then right here is North America. Now, this thing, this blobulous thing might look like Alaska, but if you look at it, you can actually realize that this right here is the Baja Peninsula. This is Mexico and California. This is all of the Pacific Northwest right here. And this is just Japan. Um, Japan is huge. Japan is huge, yes. Now, um, one of the people that I really have to credit with this is that uh, I got fascinated by this uh, some months ago uh, when I was at the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria, and I talked to one of the curators there about their map collection, and he said, one of the most consistent things that you see is that they thought Japan was bigger than it was, and also they confused Hawaii with Japan. <laughs> so they knew that there were these islands in the middle of the Pacific, and sometimes Japan and Hawaii were just kind of mashed up together, and they were just made as like this thing in the middle of the strait that would have separated Oregon, Washington, uh, British Columbia from China right over there, and the Pacific Ocean was just kind of pushed. The archipelago has spread out a little since then. <laughs> yes, the Japanese archipelago has spread out a bit since then. By the way, I used to live in Japan, and it hadn't been that close to Oregon, my commute would have been far easier. <laughs> Um, so, this is all well and good, that you have the Straits of Anyan uh, on all these maps, but something that is like extra fascinating about them is that you have a guy who claimed to have sailed through them. And this guy who claimed to have sailed through them, you might have heard his name before, that is named Juan de Fuca. And if you've been up to Washington, <laughs> Yeah, and if you've been up to um, you know the absolutely beautiful collection of islands, 
in between Washington State and British Columbia, you've probably been through the Straits of Juan de Fuca. Who was Juan de Fuca? Well, that is the Spanish version of a Greek name, Iolus Focus. And so Juan de Fuca was how they rendered it in Spanish. And he claimed to have sailed through the Straits of Amiens twice. The first time he claimed to have sailed through it, he said that his intent was to settle there and establish Spanish forts so that English sailors were not able to use this potentially valuable and important strait linking the New World with Asia. And they would claim it for Spain. But unfortunately, there was a mutiny, everything went wrong, and he had to go. The second voyage went a bit better, and he was able to do a more thorough investigation. But unfortunately, they were not able to set up a permanent Spanish presence. Now, here's the thing. Juan de Fuca might not be real. <laughs> the person who lends his name to a straight and also a very large piece of rock up in Washington State, in that beautiful collection of islands between us and Canada, we only know him through one source, that of an Englishman named Michael Locke. Um, and this is what, and Michael Locke, he was like this merchant and traveler. He went all the way around the Atlantic world and into Greece. And he did go to the New World a few times, but in his writings, um, this is what he said about this guy he met. Uh, and again, I'm going to try to quote like archaic language with extra vowels, so bear with me. He says, quote, he said that shortly after uh, the said voyage was so ill-ended, the said voyage of Mexico sent him out again, anno 1592, with a small caravella, ah, click the thing, sorry with a small caravella and a pinnace armed with mariners only to follow the said voyage for the discovery of the same Straits of Amiens. So he's on a second one, he's trying to like redo it and find it. And the passage thereof into the sea, which they call the North Sea, which is our Northwest Sea. And that he followed his course in that voyage west and northwest in the South Sea, in all along the coast of Nova Spania and California and the Indies, now called North America, all of which voyage signified me in a great map and a sea card of mine, of my own, which I laid before him. Until he came to latitude of 47 degrees, and there finding that the land trended north and northeast with a broad inland of sea between 47 and 48 degrees of latitude, he entered thereinto, sang therein more than 20 days, and found that the land trending still sometime northwest and northeast and north, and also east and southeastward, and very much broader, <laughs> Broader sea then was at the said entrance, and he passed by divers, diverse islands in that sailing, and that at the entrance of the said strait, there is on the northwest coast thereof a great headland or land, and an exceeding, exceeding high pinnacle or spired rock like a pillar thereupon, unquote. Oh my god. <laughs> so anyways, that's it. That's the whole thing. Like, that is what we have of Michael Locke's account of Juan de Fuca's second voyage of finding the Straits of Anyan. Now, here's a really fascinating thing about that. There is no evidence of Juan de Fuca in any Spanish sources. Like, Spanish colonial sources kept track of, you know, who was going out and, like, doing colonialism for them. <laughs> uh, and they don't mention him. So for a long time, a lot of scholars thought he was fake. However, other scholars have said 
hey, let's go and find out in Greece if there is anyone named Juan de Fuca, and or you know Ionas Focas, excuse me, and let's see if we can confirm the existence of somebody by that name at the right time. And they did. So now the jury's kind of out as to whether or not he was really real. Here's the thing, though. That very specific measurement that Michael Locke gave us um, between 47 and 48 degrees latitude, that is, in fact, where the Strait of Juan de Fuca is. <laughs> so the real-life thing in between Washington and uh, British, Columbian, uh, British Columbia that's named the Straits of Juan de Fuca is a strait where he said that there should be a strait. <laughs> However, it is not a tiny strait that just barely separates the Pacific Northwest from China and Japan. By the way, if you're wondering, the Strait of Juan de Fuca was not named after Juan de Fuca. It was named in 1787 by a British captain named, and I'm not making this name up, Charles Barkley. So, <laughs> Charles Barkley, even though he never won a championship, was able to name one of the more picturesque parts of the Pacific Northwest. And, bonus, there is a very large pillar of rock there that is named the Pillar of Juan de Fuca, which may or may not be the large pillar of rock that Michael Locke quoted Juan de Fuca as seeing. We just don't know, which is infuriating, because as a history person, you want to know. But we can't. Now, this is all well and good, but I talked about people's dreams and aspirations and wants with regards to maps. And what this idea of a passage between the Pacific Northwest and the East meant for a lot of Europeans was, well, we're England. We want to trade with China and the Spice Islands and other people out there. But we have this little problem. When we get to the New World, Spain, our rival, is in the way. We can't just, you know, go through Mexico or what would become like the short piece of land we now call Panama. That's Spain's territory. We can't even go around South America. If we want to resupply, we're in Spanish land. So what if we could find another different passage around the New World to these places that we want to trade with? What if we could find not a southern passage or a southeastern passage, what if we could find a northwest passage? So of course, there was all kind of searching uh, later on in the, uh, in the 1700s and even in the 1800s of a passage around the top of the, uh, around the top of North America uh, and that would put out right here for a northwest passage. You guys probably learned about this in school. The thing just went out. Come back. There we go. Oh, uh, this map is also great. Uh, by the way, shout out to Chris O'Connor. Hi, Chris. Who made me aware of this map specifically because this one puts on the, uh, not on the other side of North America, but right there in North America. Um, <laughs> which I think is utterly fantastic. Uh, there is also a totally unrelated narrative that I shouldn't get into that would make this very talk uh, very long about the like mythical cities of Quivara which that is probably the most notable of the various cities of gold, 
which um, initially when you had European settlers getting here, they thought it was in Florida. It eventually got pushed out to the Midwest. They thought, maybe we'll find it in what we consider to be Kansas City. Then they thought, maybe it's in Utah. Maybe it's in California. Maybe it's up there in Oregon. And it just constantly gets pushed the later, uh, the later maps you look at. And this is one of those. Anyways, Northwest Passage is what we're talking about. Um, advocates for Northwest Passage included um, a number of people, including John Dee, who was an English magician and al alchemist and diabolist and general weird dude who had the ear of Queen Elizabeth and later monarchs and said, we should basically just go around North America. So they tried to do that. And the guy who was really into going around North America was a man called Martin Frobisher. He was a sailor who made four expeditions up over what we now call Canada into the ice and got stuck and had to turn around every single time. <laughs> yeah. And it went badly for both Frobisher and his men and the people they encountered. Uh, a lot of his own guys died. Uh, they, they have, by the way, their encounters with the Inuits are the first encounters we know of between Europeans and with like native northern populations. Um, one author I talked to, um, a guy called Shane McCorsini, he's an Irish scholar, he talked about the relationship between the Inuits and between the English sailors. And his take on it was that when a lot of these Inuits saw a boat that was filled with only men, they became very uneasy because they assumed the worst. They thought, oh, you have a bunch of people traveling and there's just guys, this has to be a raiding party Therefore, we are going to respond accordingly. And the encounters between, no, and encounters between uh, Frobisher and the uh, native, uh, native northern populations went pretty badly. Uh, you had also them basically kidnapping a bunch of Inuits, bringing them back to England, and several of those guys dying of several diseases when they got, they got back. And Frobisher's own crew disappearing into the north and dying in moss. But this did not stop English attempts <laughs> from looking to the Northwest Passage. Has anyone seen the show The Terror? No, no one. Okay. Um, the Terror, it was a show that was on, I think it was Stars recently. It's based on a novel by a sci-fi author, Dan Simmons. It's about the Franklin Expedition, and that was the doomed expedition in the 1800s, where you had a ship called The Terror, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's companion vessel, the Erebus, which is an amazing name for a ship, uh, gets stuck in the ice in what we can consider, uh, now, the part of Canada is just, uh, just north of Newfoundland. Uh, they were stuck for a period of about three years before perishing, and that was the last serious look for a Northwest Passage. But we'll get back to that. You might know something um, less inaccurate about this. <laughs> Snapping back to the like uh, 1500s and where the Spanish are, you see California broken off from the rest of the North American continent. Perhaps there are very specific islands in between. Yes, there are very specific islands in between uh, California and the rest of North America. And this is one of the most persistent errors about North America you can find on old cartography, the island of California. And where does this come from? Well, 
Huh? It does not come from Lex Luthor. Though, uh, I love that you made that connection, because yes, uh, in the original Superman movie, Lex Luthor is basically trying to make old maps real. Uh, uh, the idea of the island of California comes from Spanish legends that actually predates the quote-unquote discovery of the New World, but in particular, it comes from a 1510 Spanish adventure novel called The Adventures of Espladian. And The Adventures of Espladian is about the titular character going around to all sorts of new lands that the Spanish have just been made aware of, including this big paradisical island known as California. <laughs> now, what is on this big paradisical island? Well, the author, a guy called Garcia Rodriguez de Montevallo, uh, says that California was entirely inhabited by, I, this is real, um, very tall black women, uh, named, ruled over by a monarch named Queen Khalifa, which sounds like a great rap name, and who lived entirely without men in the style of the Amazons. So basically California, and he also uh, compared California to a terrestrial paradise. So basically California was Themyscira from the Wonder Woman comics. Why isn't it still? Well, I, I don't know. Go make it that way. Um, so you have this sort of idea of California that predates like what we call California. So in the early 1500s, in the 1530s, you have a bunch of Spanish expeditions that get to the other side of Mexico and find this very big peninsula. And they start going up and down it, and it looks pretty islandy. There is one expedition that in the early 1530s goes up and down the Baja Peninsula. They find the mouth of the Colorado River. They assume that's the end of the peninsula and that they have found an island. Uh, Cortez calls it California, based on this sort of imagined land that was popular in Spanish legend and just got a resurgence of popularity in a 20-year-old adventure novel. However, however, uh, it was only a bit later in the late 1830s that Cortez and the rest of his guys confirmed that this was, in fact, not, a, not an island, that it was a peninsula. So very early on, a lot of people who were doing a lot of mapping realized that the island of California was nothing of the sort. There was a peninsula, and there was a larger landmass, and that was it. But the island of California had staying power. And from the 1500s until the 1800s, this thing sticks around. And it becomes one of the biggest and most persistent errors in cartographical history. You see it? Oh, I'll get to that. Um, yeah, it stays around again and again and again. Uh, in, in 1705, there was a uh, Jesuit explorer, uh, also a Spanish, named Esuibokino, uh, who thought that maybe like a lot of legends that he heard were not accurate, and was able to confirm that it was in fact a peninsula. Uh, in 1747, uh, Fernandez VI of Spain, he looked at all the evidence, and he actually made a kingly decree, yes, it's a peninsula, not an <laughs> island. <laughs> but the 
idea of the island persisted nonetheless. And a big part of that was actually from our old friend Juan de Fuca. Because one of the interpretations of the Juan de Fuca narrative, or rather Michael Locke's narrative, is that, well, maybe he sailed through the strait that separated California from the rest of the North American <laughs> continent. So, even after you had the clarification that California was in fact a peninsula, well, how do you grapple with that? How do you fix that? This is one of the ways that it got fixed. California here is a peninsula, and um, <laughs> you know, this would explain, uh, excuse me, this right here would explain why you find a very large body of water that makes it look like an island right up here. The Colorado River has been turned in, into this gigantic inland sea. By the way, it's extra funny because the Colorado River doesn't actually reach the ocean anymore. Yeah, it's not actually funny. Uh, so this was one of the ways that they kind of like made it work. Uh, one of my favorite things about this, um, by the way, this map right here, it is from um, 1750, is that there was in fact an inland sea right there. Um, way back in prehistoric times, in dinosaur era, you actually did have an inland sea in the middle of North America. And that is why we have so many dinosaur fossils in like Montana and South Dakota and Utah and the rest of it. So this map kind of sort of makes a good point by accident. <laughs> Not really. So, eventually, of course, after California got cleared up, after you had lots of people trying to find a Northwest Passage and not finding one, after plenty of folks sailed the Pacific Ocean and realized it was just a bit bigger than a strait, you had the end of the blank map. Uh, you had a lot of the continents and the islands and the features look like we would expect them to look like. In 1805, you had Lewis and Clark uh, head out to investigate the Louisiana Purchase and see what was out there. And when Lewis and Clark went out there, they actually had a pretty good idea of what the west coast of North America looked like. By that time, they had good information about what they would find at the end. However, they were a little surprised <laughs> by a few things. You might notice something missing here. You might notice um, the lack of the Rocky Mountains and the lack of the Cascade Mountain Range. They were surprised to find two, like, really big things in, the <laughs> uh, in their travels from, the, uh, from what we now call the Midwest out to the Pacific Coast and back. Um, by 1906, Uh, by 1906, on this map you can actually see the route in, route in blue, you actually did have a Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, who was able to navigate through the Arctic ice, granted in warm weather, and kind of create a Northwest Passage. Uh, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, it wasn't efficient. It wasn't something that would allow you to trade with the East uh, with any kind of profitability but it was possible. And after that, you also had other missions 
they were able to successfully navigate through the Arctic ice and kind of make the Northwest Passage real. However, by the 1900s, it was sort of a moot point. We had steam by that, crossing the Pacific Ocean by that, traversing the Panama Canal by then was something that was sort of an everyday affair. So this was not cost efficient. Uh, it was a victory, but it was something that was sort of a, somewhat of a hollow victory. Here's also something that's sort of depressing. Um, as of 2009, there is a Northwest Passage that is open year round. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> because of climate change, because of global warming, because of the loss of Arctic ice, uh, most boats can just go through what we now call Canada and do what sailors like Martin Frobisher and like the Franklin Expedition weren't able to do whenever they want to. Uh, progress? Yay! <laughs> yeah. And now we have a much better picture of the Pacific Northwest. This is the blue clouds. marble. Huh? Covered in clouds. Covered in clouds, yes. This is uh, from a series of images called the Blue Marble 2, which is not just this one image. It was a bunch of different images of Earth uh, taken in 2001, showing it at different vantage points in space. And here you can see the part of the map that was wrong and erroneous and had a giant non-existent island next to it for the longest time, and you can see it clearly, albeit with clouds on it, so it's <laughs> accurate. accurate. <laughs> um, but I want to close with uh, one of my favorite observations about maps, and please allow me a moment to kind of uh, indulge in a certain amount of like literary pretension or whatever by quoting a Borges story that you've probably heard of. Yeah. So this is a the entirety of a Jorge Luis Borges story called Travels of a Prudent Man. And the entirety of the story goes like this. It says, quote, In that empire, the art of photography attained such perfection that the map of a single province occupied the entirety of the city and the map of the empire, the entirety of the province. In time, those unconscionable maps no longer satisfied. And the cartographer's guild struck a map of the empire whose size was that of the empire, and which coincided point for point with it. The following generations, who were not so fond of studying cartography as their forebears had been, saw that the vast map was useless. And not without some pitiless, and not without some pitilessness was it, that they delivered it up to the inclemencies of the sun and winters. In the deserts of the West, still today, there are tattered ruins of that map, inhabited by animals and beggars. In all the land, there is no other relic of the disciplines of geography. Unquote. And that is what I think of whenever I see a lot of these old maps that I want to. Part of me wants to be snide, and wants to be smug, and wants to sit here in the future and look at the people who didn't have satellites and think about how wrong they were. And then I remember maps have to be wrong, otherwise they're useless. Because the map can't be the empire. The cartography can't be the land. 
It has to be a representation. It has to have our own biases and dreams and like little idiosyncrasies to it. Otherwise, we might as well just have a giant map that is out there in the deserts of the West, and we should abandon it to the sun in the winters. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that. Again, thank you very much to Floyd's and Books with Pictures for their help with this event. Uh, as always, this is a listener-supported show, so to become a monthly supporter, be sure to go over to weirdhistorypodcast.com and do that thing. Uh, also, help out the show by giving us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's always great, and it's always nice to see what you guys have to say about the show. And follow the show on social media. Uh, I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T, and the show is on Facebook at facebook.com slash weird history podcast thank you all for listening talk to you next time bye <laughs>